0: In this episode, we are in conversation with Eliada, an academic, a mother, a wife. Eliada's passion for building community in order to unleash innovation is infectious. So is her delight in answering the questions that we surprise her with. We hope you find this conversation delightful too. Keep rocking.
1: Hello, everybody. We are again on another SheRocks Global episode. How are you, Navisa? Hello, Maka, from a chilly Cape Town, South Africa. So lovely to see your face. Yeah, and it's cold in Cape Town and it's cold here in Uruguay, in Maldonado. And I'm very happy today to introduce you a very, but very important guest we have, Eliada walsh griffin L. Uh, she's in Pittsburgh right now, but she's from Cape Town. Uh, she will tell tell you and us about herself. Hello, welcome to our show. How are you, Liada? Hi, thank you. Hi, Maka.
0: Hi, Nwabisa.
2: I'm very well, thank you. It's really great to be here.
1: Yay! We
0: are so very happy. happy. To you. And I love the fact that already you're one of those people who has a happy voice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is like the greatest compliment ever. Thank
1: you. <laughs> In these days, it's very important (laughs) to have a happy voice that we are all locked down at home.
2: Right. Well, first
1: of all, and for a start, Eliada, tell us about yourself. Introduce yourself for this She Rocks Global audience.
2: Sure, sure. Um, uh, Again, thank you, She Rocks Global. I am a fan. I think you all rock. Um, So it's really great to be here. I am a, whoo, I am, professionally, I am an academic. I am a scholar. I'm a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, right now, my position is at Robert Morris University here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm a tenured faculty member. Um, but a, a, a big part of my journey, which is the part that I love the most of being um, in the university and academic world, is is that I also get to embrace being a creator and cultivator of entrepreneurial ecosystems um, on a campus level. And so over the last um, 10 plus years, uh, what I have realized is that I continually walk into a position where yes, at the center of my work is research and teaching. But then a third really incredible component is building and it is building um, systems, it's building programs, it's building initiatives, it's building opportunities um, into some sort of integrated platform by which to elevate innovation and entrepreneurship on campuses. And I love how you said I'm from Cape Town. I claim that. I embrace that. Um, I am originally Nigerian-American. I was born here in the United States. Um, and my, I'm a very proud daughter of West African immigrants who migrated here in the uh, late 70s Uh, First to West Virginia, then Oklahoma, (laughs) and then eventually to New Orleans, where I uh, came of age. I'm the oldest of of four. We were all born in Oklahoma, but around the age of seven, we moved to New Orleans, um, and that's where I grew up. Uh, But being the daughter of Nigerians and and, um, African immigrants who encouraged us to embrace our American identity, which we very much do. Uh we as American-born generation Africans embrace the idea that we are daughters of West Africa, daughters and sons of West Africa and Africa and that continent at large. So from a very young age, I always had an intrigue with um African economic development, always had an intrigue with how our how the African continent is positioned on the global stage. Um, its power and its potency, and yet at the same time, how some, it's how it could often be overlooked and abused. Um, all of that would stir both passion <laughs> and intrigue and anger um, in all the good and all the right directions. And so when it was time for me to, after college and graduate school to look for a position, the doors opened up in Cape Town. So Cape Town has to come uh, uh, a second beloved home to
1: me. <laughs> I endorse you, uh, whatever nationality, you know. <laughs> but I, I knew that you were you were reached by Cape Town, Woodna Visa. Um, uh, very, you are very welcome. I'm so happy to listen all that you are saying. Um, especially how you talk about this ecosystem building, creating communities. And I, my first question would be, what brought you here? How how like how you learned to be. Uh, building ecosystems, communities. You talk about ecosystem, and I love that word. Um, what brought you here? What kind of ecosystem were
2: you here? Oh, thank you. I, I I love that question because it allows me to kind of reflect on my own, you know, intellectual genealogy and my own journey. When I first started, um, when I first started exploring this question of of innovation it actually started first by trying to answer the question how do societies change you know i was a student of international development that's what my masters was in or is in and i really wanted to know, wanted to know how do societies transform from being comprised of one dominant industry or one dominant type of social or political infrastructure to another? How do they change? And at the time I was at the good old University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, that is quite a mouthful, but that is where I started to explore this question. Um, And at the time, what what I loved about the program was this intersection of politics, economics and culture. Oftentimes a story is told from the political economic lens, right? And so you're seeing these macroeconomic shifts in terms of uh, trade investment, in terms of uh, uh, shifts in political leadership and, 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 and the rising of factions, so on and so forth. And that oftentimes is the story of change that is told. But then in 2003, I had a, a really special experience of coming to South Africa for the first time in my life. And I was a graduate student. I was 23 years old. I was just happy to be alive and happy to be there. And I went there for an internship at the Africa Institute of South Africa in Pretoria. And although I was at AISA to study um, the new economic, uh, I think, partnership for African development, NAPAD, or maybe program, NAPAD,
0: NAPAD, which was at the time of The conversation at the time was around the African Renaissance and how Africa reimagined itself. It was quite an exciting time when I look back and now I feel so old that I even remember an era.
2: Yes. And I'm I'm glad that you historically like pin it. Exactly. So I'm walking in and I'm just like, this is awesome. But then I walk into a, um, I I, I, I enter into a, I, I was starting to go to, I was invited to go to a church uh that was I uh, that I was invited to by a young South African woman who I embraced and came to love very much as a friend. Her name is Lindy Waikosa. And she invited me to this uh, church program on a Saturday that was committed to entrepreneurial development. And they had brought in information about investment and about supporting new initiatives. And by the following day, Sunday, you should have seen the buzz. Like the church was lit, like individuals, young men and women, mostly black South African, absolutely on top of this game of we are the authors and the curators of what the next generation of uh, Africa and South Africa looks like. And I'm 23, so these are my age mates. And I'm like, yo, I'm with it. Like, yes. What do we need to do? You know, I know I'm part of the the diaspora and we're having these similar conversations in the United States. Um, So it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, it is time, yes. And so that's where my my mind shifted to entrepreneurship. I'm like, there's so much that is happening on a macroeconomic level, but when it is met and when the surge happens from the groundswell, of local innovators and molders and change makers, and it is really unstoppable. So that is where, Maka to your question of ecosystem, where that kind of birthed something in me, where I'm asking myself, what is my role? And once I, several years later, so funny how time kind of unveils purpose, several years later, once I entered the university system and was assigned uh, at University of Cape Town, was assigned to help build this space at the university with my colleagues through the, at that time, through the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, I was like, oh, okay, this is part of the role of helping to curate different expertise and helping to connect to markets and helping sometimes on a policy level to inform how either provincially or here regionally, how certain regulatory structures should change in order to accommodate and best support Um, the innovators around us and i think most importantly helping to change how we as society deem who is um an innovator who is an entrepreneur um, who should be showcased for that who should be elevated for that because i mean i think we all know that the space can become very cliquish and insular and very quickly it's like oh you speak that entrepreneur ease and you're that person while those who have been grinding and making it happen, but without the language or without the, or without the particular type of habitus or poise are sometimes brushed aside as incredible and as brilliant as they are. So yeah, that's what brought me around this, around this way.
0: <laughs> and what a way it's been. Um, so for me, one thing that struck me as you were talking about your experience, um, you know, your first encounter with these young South Africans, it really sort of alludes to the book um, title by Alice Walker, which is really we are the ones we've been waiting for. And so it's it's an important reminder, particularly those of us. Well, I speak from my point of view of somebody who's part of the global south. And a lot of the times we look at the global south as a place of challenge, problem, need, lack, adversity, And yet it's saying, well, but it also means it's prime location for us to keep on with this mantra of, well, we're the ones we've been waiting for. And if we want to actually start thinking about opportunity, innovation, and change, it's going to come through us and of us. And so for me, the question then maybe becomes quite a basic one is in your understanding and through your journey, is what is innovation? Oh, I love that. Um, What is innovation? I love that. So, innovation
2: as Uh, I've come to both understand it and teach it, is a collection of a collective of tools and capabilities that enables individuals or groups to um, uh, impart and develop ways of novelty and benefit. And so by being innovative, we're applying, yes, our mindset, our skills, a certain framework, certain methods, all those our capabilities of innovation. And we could be applying particular tools, certain types of technological innovation or certain types of, of, of uh, new developments in uh, machinery or new developments in any sort of widgets or gadgets that are out there that when combined enables us as a people or us as individuals or whoever is being deemed an innovator to enhance our current um, experience or our current state. In a way that is more novel and that is more beneficial, and so one of the outcomes that I love to emphasize with my students is that at the end of the day, it's so incredible, it's awesome to be able to come up with something new, and you know, I, I believe that as, as human beings, we, we we kind of have that innate, um, we have that desire to want to create, but then to be able to develop something new and also something that enhances people's quality of life or enhances the care to the environment, or improves a certain state or um, advances access to a certain area of resources that were not accessible before. That is where innovation can be very um, that's where it can be very powerful. And that's where it could be very transformative. When we're talking about the building towards an inclusive economy, and inclusive society, it is that we would apply innovation that advances novelty, but then also advances uh, usefulness and benefit.
0: So then a follow-up question to that, especially when you alluded again to this idea of when we talk entrepreneurship or maybe even innovators, we still sometimes have a challenge in terms of who is seen, who is then accepted as said entrepreneurial innovator. So then what's your take when we look at innovation and its relationship with social justice? Oh, I think that the social
2: justice arena right now is one of the the most forward-thinking areas that not only is presenting new innovation, but it's also using existing innovation in really incredible um, and in-your-face ways and i think that part of making sure that we are moving towards a society that is this wonderful utopia of recognizing everyone's value and creating space for everyone to be able to produce and to contribute is to make sure that structures in terms of yes the political ones and the economic ones and who's able to start a business and who's able to live where like barriers things that create barriers to people's mobility that those are addressed but it also means and hence how we innovate to take it to address those barriers absolutely critical but man noa bisa what i'm also seeing in society is this these very stuck norms and notions that we as human beings embody and internalize that inform how we think society should be laid out and so, I think so much of us also need to re innovate the way we configure our thinking and the way we configure our compassion and our love towards other human beings. And my hope is that through the restructuring of that within us, then we're able to reshape tangibly what our society looks and feels like. You know, when I was at, at UCT, I would in my social entrepreneurship class, I, I had a a part of it committed to speaking to the poverty we can um, feel but can't touch. And how is one thing to be able to pinpoint, oh, homelessness is there, oh, the shacks are there, oh, corruption is there, and be able to say therein lies the problem, let's innovate to solve that. But how about the poverty that we can can feel, such as the loneliness or the isolation or the isolation that we impose on others, Um, the stigmas that we impose on others? just as ugly, just as corrosive, and just as much needs to be combated through a a innovation of the way we think and operate as people. Um, and so in that regard, I think social justice is an embodiment of innovation throughout the value chain. I think it's, it brings it from its core of the soul, like what should be and how come it's not, how come we're not there? And then how then we follow through with how we can remake laws, how we can remake um, um, particular um, institutions how can we how can we innovate programs and initiatives that help people along their way in order to access those things? so yeah, I think it's a thriving domain for this
1: I, I love your answer and and the passion with which you talk about people and about how innovation is about people and and really uh, Working on solving the most important challenges, especially because uh, we come—at least Navisa and me—from uh, emerging economies, that where those kind of challenges are pretty uh, needing better or new solutions. Um, and now we ask you: uh, How do you uh, apply or use this entrepreneurial or innovation mindset in your personal life? Oh, that's so cool! <laughs> How do I apply it to my personal life?
2: Oh my goodness. Well, I'm a a really big fan of, you know, this whole movement around human-centered design, this whole movement around design thinking is something that has, right, is something that has caught my attention. Um, I went ahead and and, and got a, a certification in design practice because I was like, oh my goodness, that's one, it's one thing for me to bring that to my campus community especially at Robert Morris University, where there's so much promise for it. And through the Massey Center um, and through our Rockwell Fellowship Program, we're starting to be able to cultivate an entrepreneurial culture. But it's one thing also for me to think about um, action by design, period. And when applying it to... how we arrange furniture in our household to how we develop uh, community programs. That is where this um, idea of applying these, you know, these innovation perspectives have been really, really, really powerful to me. I think one of the uh, meaningful takeaways that I've um, gathered is that it doesn't make sense to build anything. if it is not responsive responsive to or reflective of the people who are supposed to occupy it. It just like, what are we doing? We're, we must just like to tinker then, you know. Um, but if we're looking to construct anything um, that is supposed to be embraced and occupied by individuals or by households or by families or by children or whoever it is, and you want to see them drive it forward and own it, then we really have to start with getting to know who they are and who we are. Um, And so I have really enjoyed being able to apply some of those tools, like I said, to my own household. Those were mistakes we were making. It was just like, why do we do that? We don't wake up. or, Or actually the opposite. Like you all wake up talking about the rest of my family, you all wake up at 4 or 7. Why are we waiting for breakfast until 11? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Less, you know, simple things like that, to be able to work with some of the communities, uh, community organizations um, here in Pittsburgh when it comes to designing some local entrepreneurship programs, um, to certain partnerships that I am instrumental in facilitating between my university and some um, organizations in the region. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's fun to see the different ways by which it could be applied.
0: Sure. And so for me, when we talk about human-centered design, it's, it's this idea of asking some very interesting questions or maybe very basic questions that then unearth a lot. So one question that we like to ask ourselves in the organization that I'm a part of is: wouldn't it be cool if dot dot dot? And so. Would it be cool? So what when Eliade is sitting and waking up in the morning and she would be presented with this idea of, ask yourself this question of, wouldn't it be cool if? How would you complete that sentence? Oh, with anything? Anything, girl. But probably if it's personal, that's the thing that will be our sweet spot.
2: Okay, okay. <laughs> oh my goodness. All questions like this stopped me because it could be anything. Um, Oh, actually, no, I think I haven't. Wouldn't it be cool if I could, let me figure out how to say it. If I could travel to any part of the world the way I could travel to the grocery store five minutes away, like right that now. Be- and and
0: cool.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck on this right now. I'm, I'm telling my husband, I'm scheming. I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out how to get to Cape Town the way I would get to RMU like on that type of frequency, or how to be able to, um, you know, this idea of, I I appreciate location-based and place-based things, but I'm also appreciating how that could be varied, and it could be multiple. So wouldn't it be cool if we didn't have to stay in one place during the academic year because my children had to go to a building for school? Wouldn't it be cool if, on, if, if a random week in the fall we just came to Uruguay because therein lies an awesome experience for an immersive learning that is unprecedented and not have to be contained or stuck to just one place because structurally that's how we've organized our society. Um, yes, I'm trying to defy the boundaries of place, that we have pinned so much to certain activities in life, like learning, like schooling, like working. You know, must we be in one place all the time to really have the most effective and powerful experience in those activities in our life?
1: And to this answer and, and in these uh, challenging times we are living due to pandemia, uh, how how is education going to be reshaped? what do you think of the future of of learning regarding this uh pandemia context that I think that changed our lives forever and I also like you to talk about being a woman a woman in, in this in this context uh, you talk okay. about being a mother too so I'm absolutely. listening oh
2: absolutely oh wow that is such a great reflective question especially for this time. We ran a hackathon at my university um, on the post-pandemic university and we invited our students, we challenged our students to, and this was at the beginning of the pandemic, this was in May of 2020, where we challenged them to reimagine what the university would look like, drawing the best from what we've learned of the pandemic thus far. At that time, it was only two months in, only two months in. Um, And so they had, you know, these, these cool ideas like simulated environments and avatars and so on and so forth. Um, But now that we're more than a year in, several of those things I think still apply. Um, I do think that what, has become evident is that human beings being social beings, some, there's something that will never replace the platform for human connection, the opportunity for human connection. There's just, I, I, I think, I, I, I want to daringly say that we have come to realize that. <laughs> we, we, for Not for all things, but for many things. We, we um, enjoy shared experiences. We enjoy developing a shared identity. We enjoy um, being in the presence of each other. So on so that's one side on the other note. however, there is so much that technological that technology enables us to streamline and to sometimes even bypass, and all that stuff needs to stay. <laughs> all of that needs to stay. The paperlessness. I'm about that. Um, the um, certain meetings that can be facilitated online that then saves someone like me time from the drive in the park. And the, we need to keep that, I'm <laughs> about that. Um, and also the power of technology that enables us, I think it was always here, but had, was heightened because of the pandemic, enables us to access the world in one virtual room, like how we're doing now. Um, experiences like that have been golden to our students, golden. And for a university like my own, which is increasingly uh, global, has a, 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 a um, international, or global education is a value that we have. Uh, and we sit out in suburban Pittsburgh, um, being able to connect to the globe virtually um, during the time of the pandemic was really, really meaningful and important to us. Um that being the case, I think as a woman, it has been uh academia could be a testy, tricky place. I think what technology has enabled one to do, how it has enabled me to do is to balance the different components of my life better in a way. Again, kind of by defying this containment to space, to a place. On the other hand, it's also brought all components of life together at the same time. And so I realize, and maybe this is, it it, it, it very much defies whatever stereotype is of the female gender, but I don't like the multitask. I don't. I could do it. I don't like it. I want to focus on one thing and move slowly. So this idea of teaching students, and sometimes working with my kids' homework and thinking about the pot of pasta that I have going on downstairs, like the whole thing at the same time, Mm. (laughs) that I could probably (laughs) do without. So I've had to reorganize life in a way, although I'm able to control how I occupy place, uh, also at the same time then be more intentional with how I occupy time.
0: That is really, really cool and so interesting. And so for me, I'm just um, tickled by the fact that this idea of defiance keeps coming up in how you describe how you're moving through your world. And so defiance on one hand implies courage and at the same time, courage then implies that you still get on with things even if they might frighten you. And so the question is, what frightens you?
2: Oh, that is so I, I told you all you all asked the best questions, um what frightens me? Huh. it's funny when you say frighten, I immediately translated it into frustration um I have to tell you what frustrates me, which maybe it informs part of the fuel to 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 keep going um and to overcome one's trepidations would be i I don't. I I don't like ineffectiveness. I, I I don't like to put in the work and not see an outcome. I'm open to outcomes. <laughs> that I am. So that part. So fear of failure doesn't bother me too much. I'm open to outcomes. You know, I've come. Uh, I have uh, thrived and failed enough to know that we live another day. So that that keeps me centered. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman of faith, you know, there's many things that I believe are out of my control. And so that which is in my control, I assert the best of myself too. But to know, but to know that I could pour out, pour um, so much out of myself and either in uh, tandem with others or because the structures around me that I can't control, the outcomes would be muted. What could be great? Is okay. What could be fantastic is satisfactory. That frustrates me, and so in a way, the the frustration of that or the fear of that is is what is is what drives me. It's like it should, it, it should be great. And our great doesn't mean it has to be fireworks and sparkles or what have you. This means it has to be, it has to be thorough. It has to be the reflection of our best and most genuine efforts. Um and when we put in our best efforts, like we as a people collectively and the outcomes are muted because of stuff that's out of our control, um, that is that 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 really grinds my belt right there. So, so yeah, I, I would like to think that um being able to think systemically as much as possible, but then also being able to kind of um release to the to the uh, the power in others, and also um, divinely, uh, helps me to stay grounded.
1: I I love it. Frustration as as an engine. uh, Innovation uh, to rethink people's lives and and social injustice. And to start wrapping up this amazing conversation, Eliada, I really enjoy everything you said. And I think all our audience will, will trigger a lot of things to think about. What makes you rock? (laughs) that scream right there what makes me
2: rock um you know what straight up what makes me rock is that I will continually embrace the opportunity and I'm not even trying to be corny here this is the truth I will continually embrace the opportunity to be embedded and immersed amongst rock star sisters I think that's what makes me rock I am looking for like you two, and um, when i find them i love on them i embrace them i really appreciate other women who are doing their thing without um without bringing you know any of the the, the negativity places of space and of life with other women is one of the best gifts that we as women can give ourselves and each other so um, i think that's what makes me rock <laughs>
0: You Definitely rock, Eliada. Thank you so much for your time. And I think this, this conversation again could have gone on probably for another 45 minutes and we'd probably be laughing and crying and giggling and all of that would happen at the same time. And most importantly, we'd be rocking together. So thank you so much for your time. And Maka, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, Navisa. Uh, I'm so happy to be uh, closing another She Rocks Global episode. Eliada, uh, we are here to collaborate with you. We also believe in women connecting with each other. Um, let's keep rocking. Thank you very much to both of you. See you next episode.
0: She Rocks Global is a podcast collaboration produced by Makarena Botta, Nwabisa Mayema, and Zoya Kukic. This season of She Rocks Global was recorded in the American Corner, Cape Town, which is also where you will find our sound engineer, T. Krai Gekana. Theme music for this podcast is composed and arranged through a collaboration between South African musician Nosihe and Hannah Sigasa from Germany. Mixing engineer is T. Luminous. She Rocks Global is a podcast that showcases the stories of perfectly imperfect women from around the world, Should you be or know someone whom you think we should be talking to, please contact us through our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter channels. Handle SheRocksGlobal, hashtag SheRocks. Until next time, keep rocking.